So when, when I was in my final semester in college, I had to take what, what some schools called a, a, a capstone class. And so it's kind of the, the culmination of, of all the learning that a student does over four years. And well, for me, it was, it was, it was longer than four, let's just be honest, uh, after getting kicked out after the first college. Um, and so like, but then I went back and kind of got my act together and uh, got married. And, and so like started actually studying and going to class and reading the books and, you know, and doing all the work. And like I was giving presentations and, you know, just studying and studying for hours upon hours. And, you know, so over those years, I was accumulating this knowledge in, in my area that I was learning about. And so, you know, so it was really this, this class that I take my last semester, it was to demonstrate that, yeah, I, I actually learned something and I, and I know how to apply it um, to my life. And so I think different disciplines and colleges do it in different ways. So Kelly was an elementary education teacher, so she had to go and teach, you know, do student teaching at a local elementary school near Grove City College. You know, maybe if you're a, a music person, you, you got to do some kind of recital thing. Did you have to do a recital when you graduated? Hmm? Juries? Oh, man. I don't even know what that means. I, I'll take your word for it. I, when I think juries, I think I would, you know, jury duty. So, like, never mind. That's a different story. All right. And so, like, maybe you're nursing. You had to, you know, do some kind of internship. Abby, my daughter, she graduated with an occupational therapy degree. She had to do like six months worth of internships and a residency. And so like everybody does something that's a little bit different that, that just demonstrates that you as a student have, have learned something. So, so I was a computer major in college and I had a business minor. And so my final paper that I worked on was to present uh, to, the, to the college that I thought we could monetize the internet. Okay, so this is 1994. So those of you who remember, like whenever you, there was dial-up, like that screeching loud thing that happened whenever, right? And, and you, all you did to pay for the internet was to pay for your dial-up thing. So I made this big presentation to my class, and actually the, the leadership of the college showed up, and you know, and I made this presentation, and and I, I'm like during the the feedback part, the Q and A at the end, the president of the college was there, and he said, I don't I don't have a question, I just have a comment, and I was like, okay, and he says, I don't think that anybody's going to want to pay money for anything on the internet. And I'm like, can I disagree with the president of the college? Like, I'm like, well, I think you can. And so that's my, you know, my thesis and everything. And so I got an A in the class and he got fired two years later. I don't know. Like, I'm not saying it was my fault, but I'm just saying that's like, that's what happens. And so like, so we're, we, we've arrived at the end of our summer study on 13 weeks on 1 John. And, and, and John wraps up this letter in kind of like a, almost like a capstone class. Like, hey, here's, here's all of the, the kind of big bucket things that we've been talking about and, and he's been studying throughout this whole letter to this church in Ephesus, his church that he's the pastor of. And so that's what we're going to look at today. We're going to look at the, the last section and some of these, these bigger picture things that John has been writing about. And, and then, like, hey, how do, we, how do we live this out? What does this mean for you and me in the 21st century in our everyday, ordinary lives as disciples of Jesus? So if you have your Bibles, uh, turn with me to John chapter five, 1 John chapter 5. So kind of back to the very back, kind of book of Revelation, and pull you know, a couple of pages before that to 1 John chapter 5. The last section, verses 13 to 21. Here's what John writes. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. This is the confidence we have in approaching God, 
that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we ask of him. If you see any brother or sister commit a sin that does not lead to death, you should pray and God will give them life. I refer to those whose sin does not lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death. I'm not saying that you should pray about that. All wrongdoing is sin, and there is sin that does not lead to death. We know that anyone born of God does not continue to sin. The one who was born of God keeps them safe, and the evil one cannot harm them. We know that we are children of God and that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. We know also that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true by being in his son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Dear children, keep yourselves from idols. And, and if you get to that last sentence of the last you know, verse of, of this chapter, and you're like, why did he start talking about idols? Like, that's new information. We're going to get there uh, before we're finished today. So, so let's, let's, let's look at these three main themes, or buckets, if you will, uh, that, that John is, is covering in this last section, but really has, he's talked about in the whole letter of 1 John. And so the first one, if you're taking notes, is that, that you have eternal life. So look again at verse 13. It says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. And so throughout the series, we've been writing our Bibles and highlighting and writing words and circling everything. And if you, you're doing that, you can underline the phrase, you have eternal life. So think about this. If, as, you, as we've been walking through this, this book, right, John has, has, not, has not been trying to persuade non-believers to become Christians. It's not the purpose in this letter. Instead, he's been trying to convince existing believers that they really do have eternal life. He, he's, he's like, I, I want to give you confidence. And so if that's what he's writing about, I mean, think about this. If, if he's trying to encourage them, like, I want you to have confidence that, yeah, you do have eternal life, that means that the people in his church, they're questioning it, they're doubting it, they're, they're wrestling with this. And so John, he begins this letter by, by claiming that Jesus, whom right, John knew, right, he was one of the 12 disciples, one of the inner three, that Jesus is eternal life itself. Remember back in week one when we read chapter one, verse two, where John writes, the life appeared, we have seen it and testified to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and has appeared to us. And so, as all of this that John is writing about, about having eternal life, like, like what's, what's the point? What's the point of having eternal life anyways? Right? Is, it, is it simply just kind of living on and on and on and on for, for like a, just an eternal existence, an unending existence? You know, many atheists say that the eternal life sounds rather boring if it's just about you know, kind of existing forever. And I think so many Christians, when I, when I talk to, to Christians, like, I don't think they've ever really thought about what heaven is going to be like. Because I, I listen to the way they describe it. And, and they'll be like, oh man, this is going to be great. I'm going to be reconnected to my loved ones. I mean, it's, it's, it's going to feel like retirement, right? I'm going to get to play golf on the weekends and eat ice cream without getting fat, right? Like that's like when people start describing heaven and I'm like, uh, I, I don't think so. I, I think it's going to be so much significantly better than just an extended retirement, I mean, and so eternal life, I mean, it's, it's really, it's, it's about fellowship with God. 
It's about this relationship that you and I have been invited into through faith in Jesus. And so next to verse 13, if you're writing your Bibles, you can write, you know, fellowship with God. Like, that's what this is about, this, this relationship that we have. And so right after he mentions eternal life at the beginning of his letter, he writes this in verse 3. We proclaim to you that what we have seen and heard so that you also may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ. And so whatever picture that you have of heaven and whatever picture you have of eternal life and what that is going to be like, John is saying, look, the very basis, the very foundation of how you're going to spend eternity whenever you get there is in fellowship and relationship with God and with Jesus. The focus is going to be on them. Right? It's going to be about glorifying and, and magnifying them. I mean, we just sang about what it's going to be like when we walk into the throne room. That it's going to be glorious. You're not going to be like, when's my tea time? No, it's like, how fast can I fall on my knees before God Almighty and worship Him and praise Him? And so the reason that life is eternal is because we're in relationship, we're in fellowship with an eternal God. And he declares that we're going to spend eternity with him. And then he goes on. John goes on in verses 14 and 15. He says, this is the confidence that we have in approaching God. That if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know he, that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we, we have what we asked of him. And so you can underline that word confidence and you can circle the word ask. It's there three times. And so what John is trying to do, he's, he's trying to connect the dots for us here. He's like, look, I, I want to give you guys confidence about your eternal life. And I want that confidence to lead to something. I actually, I want it to lead to, to confidence in prayer. And so John has told us multiple times that, that our love relationship with God is, is not to be defined by fear. It's, to, it's supposed to be defined by confidence, by love. That we walk into his throne room, we don't have to be like this. Because he's like this. He's welcoming us in. Come, welcome home, my son. Welcome home, my daughter. You know, so like, our, our lifespan on this earth, right? So many times we just think this is all that there is, but it's just, it's a speck of dust in, 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 in light of the, the magnitude of God. And so then we look at our lives, and I don't know about you, but every once in a while, I, I, I got to just, I got to get honest with myself about the things I've said and done, things I haven't said or done. It's called sin, right? And, and our sin, it, it makes us unfit to, to be in God's presence. But by God's grace and mercy, we, we actually, we can have confidence that we can walk, we can step into the throne room of God before the eternal God of love, that we can approach him as he sits on his throne because of Jesus. And so John, he, he wants his, his congregation, he wants our, our church to, to understand, like, we, we can actually, you know, we, we, we can go to God, we should go to God in prayer. He invites us there. And so then he, I think he even, he dials it in a little bit even more clear. He, he talks about a specific kind of prayer, praying for one another, what some people call intercessory prayer. And I think many times we, we simply pray for ourselves and pray for the things that are going on in our own lives. But now he's, he's like, I, I want you to pray for others. I want you to think about what that looks like and what that means. Because we've been talking throughout this series, you know, if, if we say that we have faith in Jesus but we don't have love, then, then we have nothing. Our, our faith is, is false. 
And so John is challenging us to, to use this relationship, this fellowship that we have with God in the universe to actually pray for other people as they struggle. Look what John writes in verses 16 and 17. If you see any brother or sister commit a sin that does not lead to death, you should pray, and God will give them life. I refer to those whose sin, who sin does not lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death. I'm not saying that you should pray about that. All wrongdoing is sin, and there is sin that does not lead to death. And so you can circle that word sin. It's in there five times. Death is in there four times. But I really want you to underline, you should pray. So think about this. From a biblical perspective, the, the only sin that could never be forgiven and, and this leads to death is this persistent lack of belief in Jesus. Of, of intentionally and specifically saying, you know what, I, I, I reject that Jesus came to earth to die for my sins. I reject the fact that, that Jesus is the Son of God who came to, to take away the sins of the world. And so, so I, I reject the fact that Jesus was raised from the dead on the third day. Like John's saying, that's, that's the only sin that leads to eternal death. But, and, and, it's, and as important as that is in clarifying that, that's not really what he wants to talk about. He's, he actually, he, he wants to talk about praying for other Christians. Our brothers and sisters in Christ, people who've already accepted the gospel, but who, man, they're just struggling with a sin, right? A, a sin that doesn't lead to death. And so here, here's the challenge that, that I hear, and I, I think it is for all of us at Charter Oak Church, right? That, that because of our, our fellowship, because of our relationship with God, what does that look like for us to pray for one another, right? Or do, do you intentionally do this? Right? I'm sure that you know, there, you know people just like I know people who are followers of Jesus that are struggling with, with anger, with hatred, with, with lust, with bitterness, with gossip. And what, what do you do with that? Like whenever you hear somebody come to you and just they open up their heart and, and they share that this here's a struggle that I'm dealing with right now, you're like, hmm, sucks to be you. Right? Maybe you don't say it out loud, right? Or, or maybe you're, you know, you're like, I'll pray for you. And you're like, I will never pray for this person. Right? Let's just be honest. And John, is, he's just laying down this, this, this challenge to us. Like, how do we see one another as brothers and sisters? Like, how, do, how do we approach the throne of God on behalf of, of the people who are, that are our friends, our, our, the people who are our brothers and sisters in our, in our church, and in not just this church, but, but the, the big C church of God, right? How do we do that? What does that look like? Because too often, I think we're, we're known for, for, for gossiping and, and, and con condemnation and, and judging people and shunning them and like all of that. I'm like, whoa, whoa, wait, like, what, what would happen if we were known as a praying church? That when people in your circles of influence, like when they're struggling, right, they come to you like, man, I'm, I, I know you pray. Would you pray for me? What if, they, you know, you're just out in the lobby and you're talking to somebody and they're just, they're just like, I, I got a minute, we got a minute before the worship service starts. Like, here, here's what's going on in my marriage. Would, would you pray for me? What would it look like for us to be a praying church? And then what would it look like if maybe, just maybe, when somebody said that to us, we said, we reached and said, can we pray right now? Just reach out your hand, hold their hand, or hold them on the shoulder. Just pray in that moment. What would it look like for us to be a praying church? 
I mean, think about this. In pretty much any other circumstance in life, if, if, if you knew somebody that could help a friend, all you needed to do was make a connection for them. You'd make the connection. Right? If you, you knew a doctor or you, you knew somebody that you, you needed to get you know, a family member into you know, a skilled facility for you know, their health or something like that, and you knew, you knew somebody that could help them, you, you'd make that phone call. What John is saying is, what? make that phone call to God. Go to God in prayer for them. You know, and I think this is, this is why you know, I, I love being in biblical community. This is why I, I choose to be in a small group. I get together a couple of guys every Thursday early in the morning before we all go off to work and, and we just spend an hour together, encouraging each other, studying the Bible together, studying a book together or whatever. Like, when I, when I invite you to, to go out in the lobby and, and sign up for a small group, like, I'm, I'm not just doing that because, you know, I, I'm a pastor. I got to do that. It's on my list of announcements, right? It's because I, I see the difference in people's lives who get into a small group. And so I just, I really, I, I want to encourage you to, to take that, that step of, uh, you know, of obedience and, and get into a small group this fall. So that was, that's the first thing that John brings up. That about eternal life. Second is that you are a child of God. Look at verse 19 again. It says, he writes, we know that we are children of God. So you can underline that phrase, we are children of God. And so John is, I mean, he's brought this topic up like a dozen times throughout this letter. And really, I think the place where we dove into it real deep was back in chapter 3 when John wrote this in, in verse 1. See what great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. Right? And so he's like, look, I just, I just want to remind you as, we, as we're wrapping up this book, this letter, like, come on, you, you are not only in fellowship in God, but there's something that he declares about you in Jesus. You are part of his family. You are his son. You are his daughter. And your, your primary identity in life now is a member of his family, the family of God Almighty. And so because you're now a child of God, John's saying, hey, you no longer are claimed by the power of evil. Because listen, the only way to escape the power of evil is to be claimed by God. That's the only way. And so when you confess your sin and you put your faith in Jesus and your trust in God's grace, like, not only your, your, your life is being changed, but I, you're, you're like freeing the evil one. You're, you're running away from him. And I think that's what baptism is all about. It's about parents and, and, and an individual saying, you know what, I, I'm, I'm putting my faith in Jesus. I mean, I, could, I wish I could get every one of you five minutes with, with Melissa and Carissa. Like, I met with Carissa this past week, like, 10 years old, going into fifth grade. Like, she's a dynamo. Like, she's like, Pastor Chris, like, I'm dedicating my life to Jesus. You know, like, she was like, I'm like, I wish I had that kind of fire when I was, in, I was 10 years old. Right? I mean, just amazing. You're going to hear Melissa's story. Oh, my gosh. I just, every time I hear it, I cry about what God has done in her life. I mean, this is, this is why we're at church, to see lives transform for eternity. And so this is, like, this is an opportunity maybe for, for you to think back. And I know maybe you're like me, you don't, you don't remember your baptism. I was a baby when I was baptized. You don't have to remember the, the mo that moment. It's about remembering what God has done for you in Jesus. John writes this in verse 18. We know that anyone born of God does not continue to sin. 
the one who is born of God keeps them safe, and the evil one cannot harm them. Right? Underline, the evil one can't harm them. Hey, when, when you are born of God, you're, you're no longer under the control of sin, which means you're no longer under the control of the evil one. Satan can't harm you. Right? He can't use the, the power of sin and death because they've been conquered once and for all. When, when Jesus went to the cross, he took it all on him. Right? All of our sin, all of our death, it's, it's been finished. It's, it's, it's been completed. Like That's the last thing that Jesus said before he died. It's finished. Your sin and my sin, your past sin, your present sin, your future sin, it's all forgiven. It's gone. And so look, because of that, you're no longer enslaved by sin. You're, you're, you're a child of God Almighty. And so like, this, because of that, you have victory. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago. You have victory over the powers of evil, victory over the forces of sin, victory over the threats of the enemy. Are you living in your victory? Are you walking in your victory? Or do you still feel defeated and beaten up? And finally, John wraps up this, this final piece of knowledge. Number three, you know the truth. Look what he writes in verse 20. We know that also that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding. So we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true by being in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God in eternal life. And so you can circle that word true. It's in there three times. And so Jesus, he's... he's, he's He's the one who is, is true. And he's like, if, if you know the truth, then, then you know Jesus. Because truth is a, a person, and his name is Jesus. And so much of John's letter has just been assuring believers that, come on, you, you've heard the truth. You've heard about Jesus' death. You've heard about Jesus' resurrection. You've heard about this new life that we have, this family that we're adopted in. This, you know this truth. You don't have to question. You don't have to doubt. He's brought the word of truth up 15 times. In five chapters. Remember when we talked about this back in uh, chapter 2, verse 21. He says, I do not write to you because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it. And I think they're just struggling. They're like, oh. they're, you know, they had so many false teachers and people just saying different things about Jesus that weren't true. And so they're just, they're questioning it and they're wondering like, you know, it's just like when we get on the internet right, and just hear all these different teachings and social media and news media and, you know, who is Jesus? And we just start questioning and doubting and wondering. And I think John would say, and I want to say to you, like, you, you don't have to worry. You know the truth. You've heard it. If you've been a part of our church, you hear the truth about Jesus every single week. Believe it. Because Jesus is the truth. And then, and then John, you know, he just kind of throws this curveball, it seems like, you know, on the surface, in this last verse, verse 21. He says, dear children, keep yourselves from idols. And you're like, well, where did that come from? I mean, like, what do you, what, why? But, but then stop and think. Why? Why would he end with this? Why would he talk about idols? What is idolatry? Now, you see, avoiding idols is, is really at the heart of, of knowing Jesus as the truth. Jesus is the truth. He's the true God. And idols are false gods. 
So Pastor Tim Keller defines an idol as anything more important to you than God. Hmm. Do you, do I have anything in our lives that's more important than God? And then Pastor Tim Keller, he goes on and he writes, he says, if you, you can tell you have an idol in your life if something is so central and essential to your life that should you lose it, your life would feel hardly worth living. Do you have anything? Like if you, like you start thinking about where you, you order your life, where is God? Is, is God first? Or because of just what's happening in life and everything, he just kind of slowly, maybe not even intentionally, but he just begin, you just bring him down. God's not doing that. We're doing that. Where, where is God? And if there's anything that is above God, then that thing is an idol. It's a, it's a false God. And, and this, is, this is extremely hard to think about because I think there's, there's so many things that we can potentially put in front of God, consciously and unconsciously. Right? We, we idolize our kids sometimes or our reputation or our health or our jobs or our denomination or our doctrine or our politics or our success, our, our numbers, our control, our choices, our freedom. We idolize those things sometimes. And here's the thing. Wherever there is sin in your life, there is an idol behind it. Wherever there is sin in your life, there is an idol behind it. So maybe for you, you make power an idol for you. Then, then you may struggle with anger and pride or, or arrogance. Or, or you maybe you make sex as an idol. Then, then you might struggle with lust or manipulation or hatred or addiction. If, if you make money an idol, right, you, you may struggle with greed or selfishness or possessiveness. Or if you make your, your, your doctrine or, or your politics into an idol, then you may be so obsessed with being right that you fail to love others. And so really, I think what John is saying is like, search your heart. Are there any idols there? Are there any idols on the throne that God should be on? What are the things that, that we care about more than Jesus? And if you're sitting there like, oh, Chris, I, mean, I, I don't have any idols. Like, I don't have anything set up at home where I would like candles or incense. Or like, no, I'm not talking about that. I'm not about anything in our lives that we elevate, that we desire more than Jesus. And, and here's the danger. Because if we're like, I don't have any idols, then... Remember what John wrote in 1 John 1, 8. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. And so John, he's, he's, he's like, look, I, I'm imploring you as, as people in my church, right? You, you know the truth, right? And so you, you have to be on guard against these idols. They're, 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 you know, Satan doesn't come, right, in a, with a pitchfork and, and, a, and red tights on, Right? He does it in ways that, that are alluring, that we're like, oh, I want that. I want this instantaneous grat gratification. That's an idol. Something we've elevated above Jesus. And he's like, you got to be watching. you got to be aware and protect yourself. And so we've covered a, a lot of ground in, in the last 13 weeks. 
And he brings up these three big buckets, these capstone sections. He's just like, hey, what do you need to work on? Do you need to work on just this confidence that, that you have eternal life or that you're a child of God or, or that you do actually know the truth in spite of everything else that's going on around us in culture? Which one do you need to work on? Which one do I need to work on? Who are you going to talk to about this, maybe even? You know, I, I, I hope and I pray, as I said at the very beginning of this series, that, that this, this series has led you into a deeper understanding of 1 John. That, that you, as, as we've been opening it up and reading and underlining and circling and writing all over it, like, that you, you just have come to see just how amazing the Bible is. We've had to buy two cases of Bible because so many people have been taking Bibles. And I'm like, this is glorious. People are getting their first Bibles and opening up and reading them and writing all over it. It's so, such a, a praise to God for what he's doing. And it's why I keep saying to you, read your Bible, read your Bible, read your Bible. Because we want to hide God's word in our hearts so we can live for his glory. And I think if you would open up your Bible. You won't be disappointed. In fact, I, I give you one more challenge as we wrap up today. So 1 John has five chapters. It's taken us 13 weeks to get through it. I get it. But today or sometime this week, sit down and in one sitting, read the whole letter. Pretend that you're back in the first century and you're receiving this letter from your pastor, Pastor John. And he's writing to you to give you encouragement, to give you confidence in the truth about Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful that we could spend a, a summer studying this, this, this book, this letter from John, and it gives us a glimpse into your heart. And I pray, Father, that um, we would spend time every day in your word, that we would seek to, to honor you and glorify you by getting to know you uh, in, in new and fresh ways through your word. And so, Father, would, would you speak to us? Would you, would you give us confidence by the, the power of the Holy Spirit to know that, that we do have eternal life, that we have been adopted in as sons and daughters, and that we have the truth in Jesus? Almighty God, would you work in us and, and heal us and that we may be, be known as a praying church, Father, to walk into your throne room on behalf of one another, and to pray for one another. And Father, as we, we celebrate these, uh, these two baptisms here and, and our other campuses today, God, may, may we see your glory. Would you show us your glory? Would you show us just how, how mighty and glorious and good you are? Oh, Father, we, we love you and we praise you. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, amen.